Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13, of 1805. And on the Tkumloops Tsuetmuk territory within the unceded traditional territories of Tsuetmukulu. As settlers, we take very seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. All right. So today we are talking about the diary of a teenage girl. We sure are. (laughs) With maybe just a touch of heavy sighing in the mix. Yeah, I know. I know folks don't like the sighing, but I struggled with this text a lot. And the film was just fine, which Joe was saying before we started, I I think I would have liked the film a lot more if I hadn't read the book first. And I think that's true. But I'm interested today, Joe, to talk to you about girlhood and Mm -hmm. what it means to depict girlhood in a quote unquote authentic manner. Because sometimes I think we use that phrase as a stand in for shock value. Yeah, you know, I actually had a bit of a weird recognition moment as I was thinking about this, because I want to do these texts justice. Mm -hmm. Like, the film is beloved, it has great reviews across the board. And the book the book slash comic is hailed as this masterpiece of authentic storytelling about really acknowledging what it means to be a young woman and not Mm -hmm. censoring it. And I know you're going to love this. The trailer for after two just dropped this week. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of was what is the distinction between (laughs) that text and this more beloved sort of classically upheld text? Yeah. And I feel like the distinguishing characteristic is that Gluckner's work is taking place in a more traditionally masculine dominated field. And as a result, her voice seems more authentic, which is maybe not to say that it isn't. But I think because she is a female cartoonist, Mm -hmm. as a result, she was automatically sort of like, oh, wow, okay, she is breaking through in this field and doing something revolutionary. I think that's a big part of it. I also think... I don't know. I I struggle with all these quote-unquote authentic representations of girlhood that look nothing like the girlhoods of people I know. And that doesn't mean they're not authentic to someone. But uh, I don't know. No one would ever say, like, the Babysitter's Club is an authentic representation of the middle grade years. But it's a lot closer to my experience of being 15 than this book was. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We, We tend to use authentic when what we really mean is jarring. This is an experience of girlhood that is upsetting to read and jarring to read. I don't know that that makes it more or less authentic. And I'm just, I'm increasingly curious about where we see that word assigned to texts and where we don't. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, the Babysitter's Club would be closer to what their lived experience was like but also therefore it's less interesting Mm -hmm. quote unquote Mm -hmm. whereas this is scandalous material and therefore feels more raw and shocking and daring like oh the babysitters would never (laughs) true especially the one babysitter in this book (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh kimmy (laughs) should we get into the plot 
Yes. So what are we talking about here? What's going on? All right. So this book, the full title is The Diary of a Teenage Girl, An Account in Words and Pictures by Phoebe Gluckner. And it's been called a hybrid graphic novel. I actually think... This is a book with a couple of comics. Yeah. This is a novel with some interesting use of illustration is what it is. I'm interested in how... Phoebe Gluckner has been sort of celebrated as a woman cartoonist when in yes. many ways she's she's working within the confines of autobiography and memoir that tend to be more feminized spaces. I'm just I'm interested in a whole bunch of <laughs> things happening here. And who is making these designations, right? Yeah, well, like exactly. that's the other big piece. And I wonder sometimes like this is a book that has been lauded and celebrated by a lot of male cartoonists and I'm always concerned when what we decide is good is based on you know just what the men folk think <laughs> but that's just me and also their recognition of like oh okay well she's doing things that is traditionally more associated with masculinity which is frank sexuality casual drug use etc cetera, etc cetera. and so therefore it's quote-unquote brave yeah right. no i got some problems yeah. anyway sorry plot <laughs> so the story is about mini gutsi And she's 15. She lives in San Francisco. And it's set in 1976. And the 70s are a character in this book. Mm -hmm. There's very much a sense as you read it that this book could not be happening in any other temporal space than 1976 San Francisco. Right. So at the beginning of the book, we meet Minnie and we meet her mother, Charlotte, and her younger sister, Gretel. Charlotte was a teen when Minnie was born. And their relationship is sort of very close but also sometimes competitive and fraught. And the whole reason Minnie starts keeping this diary, which we are now reading, is because her mom's boyfriend has been sort of making eyes at her. (laughs) And then one day, Minnie's mom is like, why don't you go to the bar with Monroe? I don't feel like going. And then they have sex. Yes. Not Minnie's mom and Minnie. Minnie and her (laughs) mom's boyfriend, Monroe. Monroe and I. So... Part of what's going on in the narrative, of course, is that Minnie feels simultaneously empowered by this sexual relationship with this older man and also is very clearly being manipulated and victimized by him. Yes. And it's very uncomfortable to read. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on around sexuality in the book. Minnie's really starved for physical attention because her mom has stopped, like, hugging her or holding her because her last stepfather felt that there was, like, a sexualization of of Minnie in the physicality of their relationship. It's very odd. There's a lot of weird stuff happening here. Anyway, doesn't matter. Minnie gets really into sex after her first sexual relationship with Monroe. She begins to find a lot of fulfillment. So she sort of, she kind of goes with different boys in her school. Her friend Kimmy, (laughs) her friend Kimmy is sort of dabbling in sex work alongside high school. They get into drugs. And as this narrative goes on, you just sort of realize that she's more and more in love with Monroe. And he, of course, is not going to reciprocate emotionally because he's in an adult relationship, ostensibly with her mother. Eventually, Minnie's mom finds the diary. So she finds out all about this relationship. There's a very weird thing where she tells Monroe he has to marry Minnie. Yeah. yeah. Which I didn't understand either in the book or in the film. And then uh, I... I don't know. She convinces her mom not to bring Monroe over, but they're clearly still dating, so there's not really any resolution there. Yeah, there's also a part where she runs away for a brief period of right. time because she's fallen in love with a girl who works on Polk Tabitha. Street. 
Tabitha. Yes. And Tabitha ends up more or less drugging her and then prostituting her out. Yes. Oh, and I totally left out the thing where she falls in love with the teenage boy who's been institutionalized for trying to kill his girlfriend. Yeah, but that comes to nothing, so who could care? It's a very strange book. I think one of the things that frustrated me, aside from the length, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was really this idea that with Minnie's dabbling into sexual experimentation, she becomes increasingly embroiled in quote-unquote adult lifestyles. So Mm -hmm. she becomes a heavy drinker. She ends up experimenting with drugs. She gets herself into a number of unsafe situations. And these are all coded as things that happen to adults, like rites of passage to become an adult. It's presented as a really dark spiral, like something that Minnie needs to overcome. Mm Otherwise, she will die. Yes. There's a recurring development where she just gets kicked out of her high school because she keeps skipping classes and not submitting assignments and not caring about the work. Yeah, she's on like her third high school when we meet her, I think. Yeah, and then she gets booted out of like two more over the course of the book. But it's this idea that she needs to figure out her life and her priorities. And the end of the book doesn't so much offer resolution as Mm -hmm. it suggests... Okay, I guess she's moving on. And the other part I didn't touch on is that over the course of the narrative, she becomes increasingly interested in cartooning. And this is often described as a... I was going to try to think of the German word, Joe. It's either Bildungsroman or Kunstlerroman. It's one of those. Portrait of the artist as a young person. Right. This idea of how she gets into cartooning, which I, I was texting with Joe about, or I was talking to Joe about, I don't know, Joe, at some point we communicated and I was saying to you that I don't think the conceit works because we have all these illustrations in the book that come before she discovers cartooning and then she tells us she's drawn her first comic and includes it in the diary, but Mm -hmm. there have been comics up to that point. So I find the conceit really confusing to follow as, as her kind of development as an artist. Yeah, you would have to assume that she actually went back and drew yeah entries for the diary after the fact but that's never clarified so it just becomes a bit of a what yeah it's unfortunately jarring because it breaks up the sort of semi-autobiographical nature of the text it makes it confusing as to who is the narrator focalizer yeah if there's someone else also contributing that art in the beginning and if they're not then that's not explained i'm also really troubled by a lot of the reviews You know, we get told it's a brutally honest book. We get told it's the most honest depiction of sexuality. These are reviews that are on the Wikipedia page that I'm just looking at right now. We get told that there's no better or more honest memoir. Mm -hmm. This is a book about trauma. And like, if you call this the most honest depiction of sexuality in a long time, an honest meditation on adolescence, like all of that is eliding the fact that this is a book about a young woman who's in a relationship that is a statutory rave. Yes. That is never resolved or addressed, who turns to drugs and alcohol as a way of coping with her unresolved emotions Mm -hmm. and finds herself being manipulated, taken advantage of and and profoundly traumatized by pretty much everyone she has a relationship with. 
Right. And a lot of this ends up getting hand-waved away because of the temporal setting. Yes. So this idea that in the 70s, this wasn't considered statutory rape. It wasn't that big of a deal for minors to be out at bars drinking. And everybody was on Polk Street in San Francisco in the late 70s because that was a happening scene. So there's a lot of that Mm -hmm. as though that excuses the fact that it isn't disturbing Unless you find it disturbing, in which case, oh, isn't it brave and revolutionary? (laughs) So it's like we're playing it both ways. Yeah. It shouldn't be shocking to us because it's actually authentic in the way that that's what life was like in the 70s. But if you find it too jarring, then, oh, wow, she's doing this amazing thing and we Mm -hmm. should laud her for it. Mm -hmm. And it does feel, to me, slightly performative not her work but the actual reviews and the yes. way that this was approached totally and i i don't know that we would be saying this if it was a man it feels like soft sexism if mm-hmm. that makes any sense mm-hmm. it should also be noted that she herself does not consider this an autobiography right there's a salon interview that is very celebratory like how amazing this work is but it includes an interview with gluckner And she says that she believes all art is about the artist. So yeah, my work is about me. But being an artist, art is artifice. It's creation. By reading that book, you're not experiencing what I experienced. You're perhaps experiencing my interpretation of it. But you're bringing yourself to it. Mm -hmm. In that way, I always hesitate to say that this is a true story. And yet, when they published the second edition alongside the movie, they included all these original diary pages and photos of the author as if to say look at the source material right like Mm -hmm. look at how autobiographical it is so it's I don't know there's a lot of strange things going on here and I'm I don't want to take away from the moments that are really good like I don't think that this book as a whole is a quote-unquote honest depiction of sexuality which doesn't mean I don't believe that these are experiences but I really I think they're one person's honest depiction yeah I'm uncomfortable with the generalization that is embedded in that phrasing however there are moments like particularly her self-exploration, not when she's with Monroe, but when she's describing how she feels sexually as sort of like a burgeoning sexual being as a teenage girl, I actually found those moments really thoughtfully created. Mm -hmm. I actually really like some of the play on comics, like C-O-M-I-X history with the inclusion of these figures from that scene in in San Francisco and the way they are used in the text. Like, I like that part of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm not sure that I understand where the laudatory feelings about it are coming from, except that, much like some of the other works we've looked at, I think that there's a lot of nostalgia for that moment in comics history in the way this book has been received. And for the cartoonists of that period and the people who really embraced that sort of free love, like drugs and sort of liberty lifestyle, I think that this probably feels really nostalgic in a positive way. Whereas for me, it was just really upsetting and traumatizing. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because in a way, in order to appreciate this in any sense, you have to divorce yourself of the ickiness of the situation. Like, this is obviously very challenging material to read, if only because we, from our contemporary perspective, recognize where the trauma and the abuse is happening. So on one hand, it's a bit of a slog in mm-hmm. that regard, because it's mm-hmm. 300 pages of just terrible things happening to this girl and her not being able to process it because she's only 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's this other piece, which is that this is almost 300 pages of nearly identical experiences just being repeated yes. ad nauseum. Yes. To very little impact. Like, it feels shocking initially, and then it just becomes kind of unbearable because there's nothing else happening. Yes. I feel like this book could have been half the size and 50% more effective because it just needs some editing. Yes. None of this really contributes to anything because there is no resolution because that's not how real life works. And this is a quote unquote autobiography. Like there isn't that satisfying catharsis moment. Yes, at the end, Minnie kind of gets to tell off Monroe when she has more or less broken things off, but it doesn't satisfy in the way it might traditionally work in other texts because she hasn't really matured. She's just kind of made the decision to move on. I mean, she's also tripping on crystal meth at the time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And like, nothing becomes of Kimmy's storyline. Tabitha never gets prosecuted for drugging and essentially sending her out for casual sex with men. Like, there's no satisfaction to any of these plots because sometimes that's what real life is. Mm -hmm. But it also means, why did I have to sit through 300 pages of this? That's exactly how I feel about it. I had less patience as the narrative progressed for exactly that reason. Yes, Because I think we keep waiting for Minnie to have some kind of moment of realization. Or even like, oh, her mom has discovered her diary and adults are going to step in and something is going to happen. And instead, as you suggested, we get this absolutely ridiculous suggestion that Minnie and Monroe get married. Yeah. And like, even if that did happen in real life, that just seems one step too far in this book. Yes. I think the other thing that frustrated me was that I really enjoyed the comic portions of this, and I feel like the story would have been more satisfying had it been a comic. It was the text that really drove me insane. I agree. I really liked this idea of a 15-year-old girl toying with this style of comics that was primarily established by like middle-aged men. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is interesting, and I loved the way she drew herself Like, there's so much reading to be done about how Minnie chooses to draw herself in those comics. Mm -hmm. And that, you're right, that was by far the most interesting part. I think for me, too, one of the frustrations was, like, there's really no good person in her life. Like, even her stepdad, who you spend the beginning of the book thinking is going to be sort of the person who gets her out of this mess. Right. He ends up sleeping with one of her friends. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like... No one is an adult in this book. And I guess if you have a particular nostalgia for a different kind of way of being in the world, maybe that's attractive to you. But I was just fed up. I just wanted somebody to be an adult. Yeah. So when I was describing this book to my husband, because I was audibly sighing quite a lot <laughs> when I was trying to get through it. I just imagine what you were like to live with while you were working through these 300 pages. Yeah. Well, I got to about halfway through and just realized, oh, it's not going to be any different. Like, I just now have to get through this. And every time I would kind of sigh, my husband would be like, so what is happening? Like, what is this book about that's driving you so crazy? And I just said, oh, well, apparently, according to this book, all women are whores and (laughs) all men take advantage of them and are just generally walking penises. Yep. 
that's what it is. And that is what it is. I appreciate that we're meant to put ourselves into the perspective of a 15-year-old girl, right? Mm-hmm. Emotions are going. She's just discovered sex and she's excited by it. And I get all of that. But it also doesn't make for an enjoyable read. And it just goes on for so long that it gets to the point where you realize, yeah, I got the point of this. Like, yeah. <laughs> I know what you're doing. I hit it about 100 pages in and now you're not giving me anything different. Every man is terrible Everyone. and just wants to sleep with her. And I yeah. get it. But also, ugh. Yeah. And lesbians don't come off well either. From a queer standpoint, this book is garbage because it's basically just like all queers are either super effeminate if they're men Mm -hmm. or predatory if they're lesbian. Mm -hmm. And I, again, appreciate that this is from a 70s context, but... But it was written in 2002. Exactly. Yeah. And this is where like the nostalgia interplays with the authenticity. Mm -hmm. Is there something revolutionary about being candid, but also being offensive? And... I don't know that I would advocate for her censoring the memories that she's trying to evoke, but also as a contemporary reader, I look at this and I just think, okay, well, F you a little bit. Uh, And that goes for a lot of things in the text, like just the way Jewish people, Mm -hmm. black people, queer folk are being discussed in like bohemian circles in San Francisco in 76. Like... I'm sure it's accurate, but it's not pleasant to read. And she leans into it so hard. Yeah. This should maybe have been called Diary of a White Teenager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Like the way they talk about the interracial couple that Kimmy babysits for is really uncomfortable. The way they talk about the Jewish boy who has a crush on her is really uncomfortable. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I get it. Like sometimes art disquiets us and makes us uncomfortable. But... Again, if I'm going to go through that, I want there to be some kind of resolution. And there yeah. isn't. Yeah. Well, and maybe this is a good point. I was going to say, the film handles this a little better because it's a lot tighter. So yeah, let's transition. Okay. My name is Minnie Getz. I'm recording this onto a cassette tape because my life has gotten really crazy of late. I had sex today. I'm so happy. <laughs> If you're listening to this without my permission, please stop now. Just stop. I'm gonna kill you! This makes me officially an adult. Do I look different than I did yesterday? Hey. Hey. It feels so good to imagine that he might be thinking about me. I wonder if anybody loves me who I don't know about. There's a monstrous. I get distracted sometimes overwhelmed by my all-consuming thoughts about sex and men. I don't know what's wrong with you. I think you'd be more into boys. What are you waiting for? You have a kind of power, you know. You just you don't know it yet. I got a girl, she's sweet as can be. All the other boys want to be like me. And oh, is a life I refuse to be some sniveling crybaby. This is my life. So the film is celebrating its fifth anniversary. It was released in 2015. It is directed by Mariel Heller and was also adapted by Heller after she successfully convinced Phoebe Gluckner to give her the film rights by staging a six-day play version of this. So sorry, it's a play that ran for six days, not a play that was offered (laughs) 
over the period of six days. That would I don't be know. Insufferable. It would feel pretty authentic to the book, though. <laughs> right. But uh, it, it was interesting. So I, I read briefly just on the Wikipedia page about that play, and it's described as an immersive play because the stage was constructed like her bedroom, and the audience was sitting on pillows as though they were incorporated into the set, and the action would actually take place in part out with the audience. So that sounds really interesting to me. It does sound really interesting. I have to say, so... The reason I wanted to do this is principally because I really like the work of Mariel Heller as a director. And this, I think, is probably my least favorite of the three feature films that I've seen of hers. But I think it shows a lot of the traits that she has as a director. This, to me, is a better authentic representation of the late 70s because the mise-en-scene, like the set dressing Mm -hmm. and the costuming, is just so bang-on perfect. Like, it's all burnt oranges, Mm -hmm. and we've got a lot of shag carpeting, bell bottoms, but it doesn't feel like, okay, somebody looked at pictures of the 70s and then tried to recapture it. I agree with you. The textures really sold the era to me, and... There's something about the way it's shot. It feels like it was shot in 1976. Yeah. I don't have anything more intelligent to say about it. I just really liked it. It worked for me. Well, I think it doesn't hurt that I actually did shoot it in San Francisco because that city has a character and a feel all to itself. Mm-hmm. And that really comes through in the film. So in addition to that, we've also got some really great performances. Yes. So we've got Kirsten Wig as Minnie's mom. We've got Alexander Skarsgård as Monroe, who (laughs) I love as a casting choice because I think he's actually playing the role well, but he's also Alexander Skarsgård. Like Monroe in the book is kind of overweight. He's schlubby. He's quite a loser, right? Like you're not meant to understand why Minnie finds him so attractive, except for the fact that he's the first person who paid attention to her. And it's important, right, that he doesn't have Charlotte's undivided attention they have something of an open or very casual relationship she's having sex with all these other men at the same time right and so the attraction in the book between monroe and minnie is very much about his age and power Mm -hmm. and also the fact that he can't get the level of fascination that minnie has for him from a woman his own age yeah because they would all recognize that he's a loser yeah with a vitamin business yeah oh my goodness failing mile order vitamin business (laughs) yep And in the film, Skarsgård manages to capture all of that, but he also still looks like Alexander (laughs) Skarsgård, which is kind of insane because if people aren't familiar with him from his other work, most people recognize him as Eric from True Blood, the HBO vampire series, where he is kind of sex embodied. Mm -hmm. He's the hottest person. And then you're like, okay, well, let's dress him up in period clothing and call it a day. Yeah. (laughs) So I do think he plays the role well, but it's distracting how attractive he is, I would say. Like, I think it takes away a little bit of who the character is supposed to be. Yeah, it does. And it makes, it it changes the dynamic of their relationship as well in a way that I actually don't think is successful. Mm -hmm. Although I like both of them. I think Belle Powley is an amazing casting choice. She's fantastic. Yeah, so I was unfamiliar with her. She's a British actress, and this was kind of her big debut. She had been in a couple of other things, but I think people really took notice of her for this role. She was 23 at the time that they filmed this, so I would say that's kind of my one Yeah, thing, is yeah. that she does not look 15 in this film. But she does look like 1976. She does. <laughs> the bangs. Oh, the bangs. The bangs. But... 
in a way, it's almost a smarter decision because we're mm-hmm. not so distracted by the age discrepancy. Yeah. Like we recognize that she's still younger, he's still older. So all of that works. And I think it almost makes it easier to accept so that we're not just constantly thinking about the gross out factor. And the film needs that because it more or less does away with all of the other stuff to focus primarily on the Minnie and Monroe relationship. Like that yeah. is where the streamlining streamlining is happening in this film streamlining dreamlining <laughs> i've got drew barrymore mouth <laughs> um i agree i think that yeah it's definitely a much more focused story thankfully there's a clearer sense of what the beats of the plot are and there's a clearer sense of resolution yes it simplifies the story a lot and i think that that is to the benefit of the story as a whole yeah so in some ways it's funny because i was wondering if we were going to come down on this film because it's kind of alighting some of the edges like sanding Mm -hmm. off the problematic parts of the book to make a more hollywood friendly film but i think in this case this is actually the smartest thing that it could do because there's so much extra stuff in the book that just doesn't need to be there particularly to tell this kind of story like the film is still shocking it's still frank about the sexuality and the drug use but it also tells a story in a way that the audience can accept it so that the film can make its point and actually be digested whereas Mm -hmm. the book is so eager to shock that you almost feel like okay well i don't want to finish this like i get it Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think if the book had been saying anything interesting (laughs) about these bigger (laughs) issues, I would be annoyed that it was gone from the film. But as it is, the book never comes to any thoughtful or interesting critique. And so why not get rid of it? Yeah. And I think to me, the biggest decision that the film makes is that it chooses to imply that Mm -hmm. many has been drugged and then sexually loaned out by Tabitha. Mm -hmm. And yet the way that Mariel Heller writes and then directs the scene is that you see Minnie on the couch and she has a cartoon hallucination Mm -hmm. of Kimmy and this man with his genitalia exposed coming towards her. And then she wakes up almost as though, is it a dream or did it actually happen? Mm -hmm. And you're left to infer without the implications of a rape scene closing this film. And I just, I thought it was masterful. Like I'm, it sounds terrible, but I'm always really intrigued with how women present rape Mm -hmm. or sexual assault as opposed to how men do it. And I think if we had have had a male director, we would have gotten an actual attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And instead the way it's presented is ambiguous enough that you can easily read it, but also just say, Oh, there's an implication that that could have happened, but maybe it didn't. And either way works, I think for the film. Yeah, I agree. And I guess this is true of the book too, although I think it's less successful in the book, but it is refreshing to see um, sexual assault without any interest at all in the impact it has on a man, because normally that's the version of it that we get, right? Right. It's like either telling us that somebody is bad or it's giving a third party male a a revenge plot to pursue. So although I don't love the way it happens in the book, because again, I was craving some resolution, I'm at least grateful that we don't have yet another meditation on how yeah. being victimized <laughs> affects men. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who could care? Unless it's like the male is the victim. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, that's a different narrative. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I 
I think overall, I feel bad because I can't say that I enjoyed the film. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't mind it. I was a little bit bored by it. But I think it's mostly I'm punishing it, if I can use that word appropriately, because of its proximity to when I finished the book. So I had to watch the movie because we were recording and I had just finished the book and I had really not enjoyed it. And as a result, I kind of watched the movie saying like, yeah, okay, well, this is a good adaptation of that scene from the book. But overall, I can't say that I love the film in the way that I think I might be able to say had I not read the book. Yeah, I think that's true. I will say I'm not sure time makes a big impact because I had like a week and a half in between finishing the book and watching the film and I oh, really? <laughs> was still very blah about it and I think it's just because you know often when you read an adaptation or when you watch an adaptation sorry even if you didn't like the source material there are things that you're looking forward to seeing how they're dealt with right I, there was nothing in this book that I was eager to see translated to screen okay so that for me really changes the relationship you know Right. Can I ask how you felt about the animated sequences in this? Because I feel like we've complemented it in other films where yeah. we've seen animated pieces interjecting on quote unquote real world experiences. I actually thought it was a nice way of introducing the idea of Minnie's interest in comics. Right. It made more sense to me in the film than it did in the book because you can see her already sort of trying to think visually before the Aline Kaminsky stuff kicks right. in. And so in that way, I thought it bridged more effectively. I felt like it was underused as a tool. Like I could have seen more of it and been pleased. I don't think it was groundbreaking, but I think it was effective. Mm -hmm. And as I say, I think it did a better job of telling the story of who this girl is becoming as an artist than the book did. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I would have liked a little bit more of it or even felt like it was more ingrained into the film. Mm -hmm. Because we're so focused on Minnie and Monroe, there's almost less emphasis. Like there's a couple of shoutouts to Crumb and Kaminsky, but overall it feels more like, oh, there's comics in the memoir and as a result we should look for ways to incorporate it here. Mm -hmm. It does occur naturally, but it doesn't happen frequently enough to make it feel like it's something. There isn't that piece yeah. at the end of the film where it's like, and she became a cartoonist, <laughs> which is kind of what you would expect. And maybe we should applaud the fact that it isn't so heavy handed. But at yeah. the same time, a lot of the other things in the film feel like, OK, we're moving to a resolution. So why not do that? I wonder if this comes back to casting again, like if they had cast an unknown instead of an Alexander Skarsgård as Monroe, would we have gotten more mini development and less focus on that one relationship? Uh, it's a good question, right? Because when I watched the film, like this is a tiny film. Mm -hmm. And this is her directorial debut. So I think in some ways, the casting of Wig and Skarsgård, obviously, we're going to say, okay, there's some stunt casting going on yeah. in here. But I think <laughs> that this is this is how you make an indie film with a first-time female director. You try to get some bigger names into it, and that way you can secure distribution. Like, it didn't really help the film. The film ultimately only made $2.3 million, so this is not a hugely well-known or popular film, but I think the people who like it like it quite a lot. And it did end up winning Best First Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards, which are kind of the... American Oscars for independent cinema. Mm -hmm. So this film has a lot of people in its corner who say like, this is a great film. And I think 
it's a testament to Heller's work that she was able to go on and then make successively bigger and even more well-received films. Like mm-hmm. her filmography, she's only directed a couple of big films, but they've all been very, very well-received. Like she's clearly a director with a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what to make of this movie. I'm glad they streamlined it. I'm glad they focused down on one aspect of the text. I maybe wish they had picked a different aspect of the text to focus down on. I don't know that there is. Like, I no, mean, that's the problem, right. right? There's no getting around it because really that's all there is in the source material. It's like, which traumatic incidents do you want to focus on? <laughs> and in the film, they just decided, okay, let's just focus on the one big one. Yeah. I'm not sad that we watched it, no. but I don't know that I have the intention of rewatching it ever again. No. And I definitely would not recommend the book. No, I wouldn't either. Should we do YA Bingo? Yeah, let's do some YA bingo. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so we've got some queer or slutty secondary characters. Uh, Both, to be honest. I was going to say Tabitha is both, but... And Kimmy, and Ricky is our gay... Is he meant to be a sex worker? Is that the implication? Or is it just that he's hanging out on Polk Street? I believe he is meant to be a sex worker. Okay. Yeah. Good times. Obviously, this whole book is a sexual awakening. Right, yes. Uh, we have a mediocre white man in Monroe. Can we call him that? I'll allow it, yeah. Um, we have abuse, obviously. Mm-hmm. We have stunt casting, we already said. Yeah. Allusions to classic lit, if you consider the history of comics culture classic lit. I think so, just because we are giving shout-outs to like, the really the biggest big names. figures, right? Yeah, totally. Particularly in independent alternative comics comics, alternative comics thank you yes then we really are talking about some of the biggest names in the biz right totally totally yeah we've got a love triangle (laughs) yes we do and then we have that awkward threesome almost starts another love triangle yeah it's true i think that's it unless you've got some You know, I won't lie. Part of me almost wanted to say rich people problems. I know that particularly in the film, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more clear that Charlotte, which is the Kirsten Wig mom figure, is struggling with money. Like at Mm -hmm. one point, Pascal actually sends her a check for $1,000 to cover the rent because she's been unemployed. Mm -hmm. But she used it to throw a party, though. I mean, just so much about the way that these people are living their lives is like money is not a concern. Minnie is just out there doing drugs and she doesn't care about the fact that they keep kicking her out of school because she doesn't care about her future and it it reminds me a lot of the kind of antics that people who have money get up to well part of it is that they're all they're being bankrolled by charlotte's dad right like all the private school tuition is charlotte's father no Minnie. no charlotte's father is paying for the oh right it's the grandparents sorry yeah Because they're not in the film at all. They're not in the film at all, and they're not in the book either, barely. So you have this sense of, like, yes, they are broke, but they're not poor, right? Right. So they're able to live this kind of, like, boho, hippie lifestyle because someone else will always bail them out of whatever financial difficulty they get into. Right, right. Okay. And it's medium tedious. <laughs> there we go. So I think then the only other ones I would add is gaslighting, but it's really Charlotte who's being gaslit. Yeah, yeah. By Monroe and by her daughter, but by Monroe too. Like when yeah. oh, Pascal's like, I think Monroe might be inappropriate with Minnie. Yeah, and she even confronts him yeah. and says like, you've been looking at my daughter's <laughs> and he's just like, no, I was probably looking at your <laughs> oh, 
gosh. I hate him so much. And then I think the final piece is probably musicality for the film because they make really good use of music from the time period. So again, that authentic reenactment of the late 70s era. I'd buy that. Yeah. So unfortunately, that does not give us a line. Boo! You failed us again, book and film. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Alrighty. So, if you want to talk to us about why you think Diary of a Teenage Girl is good, actually, you can find us on Twitters on the hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be found at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you want to get both of us with something longer, you can hit up our email address, hkhspod at gmail.com. Please do keep the Minnesota ideas coming. Yeah. So I know what book is next, but I don't know what Minnesota is next. Okay. So for the Minnesota that we're going to address next week, we are going to East Compton to check out the Clovers and Big Red and Torrance. Brenna, we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Bring It On. Joe, I have to confess something to you. You've never seen this movie. I've never seen this movie. Of course you haven't seen <laughs> I this I didn't movie. get a single one of those references. I had no idea what was going on until you said Bring <laughs> So more broadly speaking, we're going to be talking about sports and competition. And, you know, I realize we really haven't talked at all about this idea of teens being on like sporting teams and how they use that to define themselves. <laughs> sporting teams. Sporting you teams. You actually play sports and you still sound like a goof when you talk about sports. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and I don't play anything. I barely leave my house. <laughs> well, maybe it's just because I don't really consider cheerleading to be a sport, but uh, you know what? For the sake of bring it on, I'm willing to reconsider. You're just inviting some angry mail now. Um, and then yeah. after that, our next regular sode, we're going to be looking at A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. And Joe, I actually think I'm going to have time to read the book and the graphic adaptation in addition. Oh, to interesting. Okay. That's what I'm going to try to do. Yeah, I'm excited to check this one out. It's an older book. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Madeleine Langell's 1962 novel. Is the graphic novel or the comic more recent? It's very recent. I think it only came out about five or six years ago, and it's a Hope Larson adaptation. Oh, fantastic. Right? Okay, then I really want you to make time to make sure that that happens. <laughs> I will. I will do my best. Yeah. And then the film, of course, is from 2018. And it's directed by Ava DuVernay. Who yes! I'm really intrigued by this. I know that the film got mixed reviews, but... I'm kind of fascinated because I only know Ava DuVernay from her activism work, like all mm-hmm. the documentaries that she's done mm-hmm. about basically black men being incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So I find her super aspirational and I'm intrigued to see how she brings her brand of activism to a fiction adaptation. Yeah, I'm really excited about it too. Ah, I'm very excited. Yeah, so bring it on next week and then in two weeks, A Wrinkle in Time. All right, everybody. So hope you're staying safe out there and uh, let us know what's going on with you. And until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.